the whole creation account has a particular purpose, an objective to it. When we think of the creation account as a house story, we think the objective is the house. And of course, I've been suggesting that it's a home story. And in that sense, we're going to find that it's a very different kind of story than what we thought, and one that is theologically hacked. Uh, but we'll get ahead of myself. So imagine the first creation conference in the history of the world. The Canaanites are there with their representatives, and the Egyptians are there, and the Babylonians, and the Sumerians, they're all there uh, to participate in this creation conference. And Moses walks in. And Moses has his paper to deliver. And it's Genesis chapter 1. And they would flip through it, the other delegates would flip through it, and they'd say, oh, okay, I get it, Moses. Uh, this is a temple story. And we're kind of sitting there in the outskirts of the room as observers, and we say, wait, wait, hold it. What do you, what do you mean, a, a temple story? Uh, I've read the, I mean, there's not a long paper here. I've read it. Uh, it doesn't say anything about the temple. Uh, what do you mean it's a temple story? And they say, well, it's very obvious it's a temple story. And you're starting to feel that insider-outsider tension, recognizing that you're a low-context person in a high-context setting. You say, I'm sorry, I'm just not getting it. Uh, how in the world would you think this is a temple story? Well, I say, come on, God rests? Yes. Well, God rests in temples. Temples are where God rests. If God's resting, it's a temple. Oh, that's not something we know. That's not a given to us. But we're outsiders. We're low context. In a high context situation, that is so obvious, it doesn't have to be said. So we're going to talk about the idea of the cosmos as sacred space. This is the Judea cylinder. Dates to about 2000 BC, um, and it's one of our most complete temple building and temple dedication accounts. Now, the point is that we have lots of this information from the ancient world. Temples were a big deal. And of all the things that a king would boast about, he would boast about his, his military exploits and his victories, he would talk about the cities that he built, he would talk about the temples that he built or refurbished. Temple building was a big deal because the king was there uh, by the behest of the gods. And therefore, the king's job was to make sure the gods were well served and the temples were where that happened. So we have loads of temple accounts from the ancient world and they help us a lot to understand this mentality. So what we learn in the ancient world that temples were the places where gods rested. And that's the only place they rest. They're constructed for a deity to rest in. So we have this connection between temple and rest. Now, that still might seem like an odd thing to you. You've probably wondered, if you read Genesis, what's going on with God resting? What's 
I mean, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need a nap. He doesn't need downtime. Weary, exhausted. None of those, none of those concepts work. So what's going on with God resting? And we end up saying, well, we relegate it to theology. This must be kind of a theological tag-on uh, to, to get to the idea of Sabbath for people. And it becomes a non-issue in Genesis. As a matter of fact, we talk about the six days of creation. And when you think about Genesis 1 as a house story, day 7 has no, no way to fit in because it has nothing to say about the house. But see, day 7 is when God actually makes it his home. As the home story, day 7 is the most important part. People may be the climax of the six days, because God's making the cosmos function for them. But the climax of the whole account is rest. God has ordered this world to function for us, but he's ordered it so that he can reside and rest in it, take up his residence in this home. So the whole purpose of ordering is for God to move in. Okay, so you're moving into a new apartment, new house, whatever it might be, new dorm room, okay? You're moving in, and so you move in and boxes, boxes everywhere, right? Just non-order. Nothing's functioning properly because everything's in boxes. Your life is in boxes. And you gradually take some time and unpack the boxes and get everything set up and get the things hung on the walls and furniture put in its right place and drawers and cupboards are filled, okay? You get everything set up. You order your world. Now, you're not ordering that new world so that you can then take a nap and leave. You might feel like taking a nap when you're done at all, but you worked hard, okay? But you didn't do all of that so that you could take a nap. You did all of that so that you could reside there, live there. And so you ordered it not for the purpose of resting, but for the purpose of living. And so in that sense, all of that ordering has a purpose. And that purpose has to do with the, the environment that will be your home. So rest is the main goal of creation. When we understand creation as the ordering, as the setting up of the home, rest is the main goal of that. That's what God did it for. Now again, we fail to understand this oftentimes because we don't comprehend the biblical theology of rest. Let me take you through a couple of the high points. When God says that he's going to give rest to his people from their enemies, this is Deuteronomy, Joshua, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. Obviously he's not talking about I'm going to give you a chance to take a nap while your enemies aren't watching He's telling them he's going to resolve their problems with their enemies. He's going to make their enemies a non-issue. The enemies are not going to be invading and conquering and bothering and hassling them. And so he'll give them rest, meaning that he's going to give them stability and order in their world so that they can live life. Okay, so rest there for them is a very positive, engaging activity. 
and the enemies are going to be set aside so that there is stability. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not saying that he will give you some downtime, some leisure. He's rather saying that I'm going to bring um, some additional stability and order to your world as you become part of the kingdom. And so you will take my yoke upon you. But it's light. So that again is engaging in the kingdom and finding stability and order in the kingdom of God. Excuse me. It has nothing to do with relaxation or leisure. When the book of Hebrews chapter 4 says that you have not yet entered that rest that God spoke of. He's referring back to Deuteronomy and Joshua. He says that you've not yet entered that rest. He's talking about there's still yet a higher level of order and stability to come as God's kingdom unfolds. And even into new creation. So we find that rest throughout the Bible is not a matter of relaxing. It's a matter of order and stability. And that's why God is creating. Again, he built the house, yes. But we're talking about something much more important than that. As he has brought order and functionality to this world. What we find then is that resting expresses having control over an ordered system. And more importantly, rest is a matter of engagement, not disengagement. We think of rest as stepping back. But in the biblical sense that we've been talking about here, rest is being able to engage in a stable, ordered situation. So rest is engagement, not disengagement. When we have our presidential elections, uh, two years worth of campaigning for these candidates in order to try to get into the White House. When they finally get elected and make it there, they take up their rest, their residence, in the White House. They have not gone through that two years of chaos in order to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom. When they take up their rest in the White House, they're thinking Oval Office, not Lincoln bedroom. They're not thinking the private apartments. They're thinking about the command center of the universe as they understand it, their world. But see, that's what temples were in the ancient world. The temple is the command center of the universe. When God orders the universe, he's then going to step into the control center. He's going to sit at the helm. He's going to take the controls. He has ordered it for that very purpose. <clears throat> and so God has made this world his home. So we've got these two elements. God has caused it to function for us, but it's his place. So it's his home. We're invited in as honored guests. And the whole idea is that we're going to be in relationship with each other in this environment, in this home that we share. Welcome to God's B&B. &B. You, know, you know how it is with the bread and breakfast? They, they purchase some kind of house, okay? 
and they're going to convert it, give it a new function, where it's going to serve as a bed and breakfast. They set up that house to function for their guests. And it's their home, but they've invited these guests into it, and their, their um, intention is to interrelate with these guests that they have. Now, of course, that's, those are temporary short-term relationships. We have to look at the, the longer term here when we're talking about God. But that idea that it's their home, but they've made it function for guests, and they've invited guests in to relate with them. Right? That's what's going on in a B&B. Okay, so God has taken this house, and he prepared the house. He prepared it to be a home. He built it for that very purpose. Okay, but the most important part is when it actually becomes a home. For us, for him, for all of us together. And so when God rests in this home, he takes up his residence there. He takes up the controls. It's now an ordered system, and he is ready to run it. And so on the seventh day, the ordering process is done, and God has taken up his residence in the home. Now sometimes people say, what did God do on the eighth day? Well, you can see that that's very obvious now. I mean, he, is, he spent the six days setting it up so he can take up his residence. When he takes up his residence, he's ruling. So on the seventh day, he takes up the rule of the cosmos. They say, well, didn't he rule it before? Yes, but now he has made it his home. That's the difference. That's what happens in these seven days. God makes that house his home. And he sets it up to work for us. So what did he do the eighth day? He ruled. Ninth day, he ruled. How far do I have to go? You get the idea. The ordering was just the transition to the ruling. And the ruling is the point. Now, that's a theology that we don't get from the Genesis account when we read it as a house story. But it is the most important part of the story. This whole story is being told for that very purpose. The rest God gives resolves unrest. Let me say that a different way. The opposite of rest is not activity. The opposite of rest is unrest. Give you a different view of it. Now, I usually say this to the Q&A, because somebody always asks it, but since we have plenty of time to luxuriate, and I'll cover it now. Some people will say, well, then what about how we observe Sabbath. Usually when I only have an hour to present, I don't put this part in because I know somebody will ask it and then I get a time extension. You know, somebody asks in the Q&A and I get to do it. We've gotten it wrong. We have thought that when we observe Sabbath, we're supposed to imitate God. God rests, I rest. Now imitating God is typically a good thing, but if we're talking about God ruling, imitating God is not a good thing. But our Sabbath observance is not for us to imitate God. Again, when he rests, 
He rests in the command center. He rests at the controls. He takes control of the cosmos. We're not supposed to do that. What we're supposed to do is on the Sabbath, we're supposed to recognize that we are not at the helm. We are not in control. We are not establishing our own order and stability. God is the one who has brought order and stability to our world. God is the one that's at the controls. And when we observe Sabbath, instead of imitating him by relaxing, that's never what it was about, instead of imitating him, we are participating in his order instead of being focused on our order. So we stop our own work because our work is trying to bring order to our world kind of on our own. When God stopped bringing order, it was because order was established. And now he was ruling it. We are continually trying to bring order to our own lives through the work that we do. And in Sabbath observance, we say, okay, it's not me. It's not me. God is the one who is the author, center, and source of order and stability in my life. And I'm going to recognize that, acknowledge that he is the source and center of order by taking my hands off the controls. And I'm going to participate in his order by doing kingdom work, by thinking kingdom thoughts. And so I take leave of my own order-bringing activities to recognize his place. That's what Sabbath is supposed to be about. It's not about taking a breather. Yes, ma'am? It's probably not time to ask a question. Go ahead. Did the Israelites understand it that way? Uh, I think they did. Uh, you know, usually uh, the biblical texts talk about what you don't do instead of what you do do. Uh, but we do have the reference in Isaiah 58, 13, uh, 13 and 14, uh, where it talks about what you should do on the Sabbath, what you should think about, and it's very much kingdom work. And you'll also find that Jesus' comments about the Sabbath fitted very nicely with this. The Pharisees had misunderstood it. Okay, back to this. Now, does the Bible reflect this kind of thinking? Yes, it does. Again, I've, I've mentioned the ancient Near Eastern text, and this stuff is all through the ancient Near Eastern materials. I mean, it's, it just, uh, it's, it overwhelms you. But of course, it's in the Bible too. As, as you know, I'm not just bringing stuff, importing it from the ancient Near East and imposing it on the text. I want to find it in the text, and certainly it's there. We take a look at Psalm 132. Let us go to his dwelling place, so we know we're talking temple. Let us worship at his footstool, that's the ark. Arise, O Lord, come to your resting place. Temple, resting place. See it? And this, is, this is obvious here. You and the ark of your might, the Lord has chosen Zion, desired for his dwelling, that's the temple. This is my resting place, that's the temple. Forever and ever, here I will sit in front of you. See, it's been there all along, we just haven't paid attention. Now this particular understanding shows us that God resting is the climax and the objective of his created work. Again, you can't talk about the six days of creation. 
That misses the whole point. It's all done for a reason. And that reason is day seven. But when we only think it's a house story, we don't know what to do with day seven. As a home story, day seven makes sense. And this is a robust theology. It's essential to the nature of the text. The whole idea of the start of scripture is that God is establishing his presence among people to be in relationship with us. That's the whole point. And that concept is going to flow all the way through all of the pages of the scripture till Revelation 20, new creation, where God is again in the midst of his people. And there will be no sea and darkness. Non-order is gone. There will be no suffering and pain. Disorder is gone. There will be no temple. Because we don't have to mark sacred space that way. Because God himself will be in our midst. From front to back of the canon, God's presence is the issue. God's presence was lost at Eden. That's really the worst part of the fall. Sin's bad. But the worst part of the fall is that we lose access to God. Access to his presence and relationship with birth. And so the rest of the Bible is the recovery of God's presence. Okay, we had God's presence in the cosmos, chapter 1, God's presence in Eden, chapter 2. Loss of God's presence, chapter 3. Attempt to re-establish re God's presence, Tower of Babel, chapter 11. God taking the initiative to re-establish his presence, covenant with Abraham, chapter 12. As he is going to now reveal himself to his people so they'll have a right idea of him so that, that he can dwell in their midst. Follow through then to God's presence being absent. His people are in slavery in Egypt. Where's God? Burning bush. Mount Sinai. Pillar of fire. God's presence. Tabernacle. God comes, dwells among his people. Solomon's temple. God dwelling among his people. More to come. Emmanuel. Jesus. Incarnation. God with us. God's presence among his people. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And then Jesus says, but I'm leaving. His disciples say, ah. That's what the Greek is, ah. Okay. And so he's leaving. And he says, but I won't leave you without my presence. I'm going to send the comforter. Pentecost, God's presence, now dwelling within his people who are the temple. Do you see it? This is the theme, theological theme of the entire Bible. And it starts in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're so busy thinking about science that we miss what the text is about. Because we've tried to turn it into a house story. Which it never was. Now, if this is a story about God making this house his home, 
How does that transition take place? I mean, you build the house, but then it becomes a home. We talked about the builder last night, you know, who builds a house and then can't sell it and then finally sells it and it becomes someone's home. How does that transition take place? Well, if we're talking about temple kind of um, ideas here, sacred space, we should observe how that takes place. Last night I talked about Solomon building the, the structure, the, the house. And when that's all done, it's not a temple. The temple does not exist until God moves in, right? Okay, so there's some point then where the house is all prepared, but it's not a home yet, and then something happens. What is that? How does it work in biblical thinking? How does it work in ancient Near Eastern thinking? Well, they have a temple inauguration ceremony. You know, sometimes when a church builds a new building, they have a temple, a temple yet, yeah, a church dedication. <laughs> And maybe they'll stretch it out over several days, okay, to, for all the, the um, celebrations to take place. But we have these accounts in both the Old Testament and the ancient Near East of these temple inauguration ceremonies. And this is when the structure, the house, becomes a temple, the home. And so it's a temple inauguration process. We have it in, uh, in uh, Kings, First Kings, with uh, Solomon. Solomon's Temple, and we find that in those, uh, in, in this inauguration, first of all, the functions of the temple are declared. Sound familiar? Functions being proclaimed. Then the functionaries are installed. Sound familiar? So they, the temples, uh, temple furniture is moved in, the priests are commissioned, okay, and the uh, rituals are initiated, so the functions are proclaimed, the functionaries are installed and commissioned, and God's presence, God rests in that temple. Those temple inauguration ceremonies in the Bible, and oftentimes in the ancient Near East, take seven days. Hmm. Seven days. Usually when we think about the seven days in Genesis 1, we are already thinking that it's a material account, that it's a house story. And so we think of the seven days as the time over which the house was built, material origins. And of course, that becomes an issue of some debate. People talk about this word day. Does it really mean a 24-hour day? I've always believed that it does. I don't think the Hebrew case really stands up to try to make it mean something else. But I do believe that it's a 24-hour period. When you treat it as a house story, when you think it's a material account, then the discussion begins to concern the age of the earth. But what if it's not the house story? What if the seven days don't really have to do with the material process? Then the seven days would have nothing to do with the age of the earth. Because seven days is for the home story. Seven days is for making the house a home. Seven days would have nothing to do with the age of the earth. 
But if the seven days is like a temple inauguration, the objects are not being constructed or made or built in those seven days. In which case, the seven days, seven literal 24-hour days, has nothing to do with the material origins of the cosmos. If that's the case, then the Bible has not made any claims whatsoever about the age of the earth. It doesn't tell you the earth is old. It doesn't tell you the earth is young. It's not interested in the material story. It has no opinion on the matter. It has no affirmation to make, no information to give, no claims are made. If the days are concerned with bringing order rather than making things, the seven days has nothing to do with the age of the earth. Again, I'm not promoting a science. No. But if the Bible doesn't make a claim, you have to go to the science and decide what the science supports. <clears throat> I don't know many people who would say that if the Bible does not require the earth to be young, I would still believe it. Just based on the science alone, I would believe it, even if the Bible doesn't claim it. I haven't met many of those people. One or two have suggested they, they would. They think the science is... is, is in that, in that favor of that view. But you know, then I say to them, so why is it that you folks keep talking about the appearance of age? If there's an appearance of age, that suggests that the Earth looks old. Um, doesn't that suggest that the science supports that view? But at any rate, I don't get into those arguments um, because, again, that's really not my, my focus. My focus is to say, what is it that the Bible does claim or doesn't claim? Okay, and in this case, if the seven days doesn't have anything to do with the age of the earth, there's no claims to be made. So, my conclusion about Genesis 1. This is basically my paraphrase of Genesis 1.1. In the seven-day initial period, that's what the biblical text calls the beginning. The word it uses for beginning does not refer to a point in time. It refers to a period of time. That is an initial period. So in the beginning is not that one point in time that is the beginning. It's rather the initial period. And that initial period is the seven days. The beginning that it's talking about is the seven days, because when you get to the end of the seven days, then it tells you that indeed God has created the heavens and the earth in those seven days. So in the initial seven-day period, God brought the cosmos into operation. Cosmos is heavens and earth. God created the heavens and the earth, but brought the cosmos into operation by assigning roles and functions. That's bara, create. So. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. Or, in the seven-day initial period, God brought the cosmos into operation by assigning roles and functions. I'm not suggesting you change your translations. Okay? But this is how I would interpret that opening phrase. 
Okay, let's pause just for a minute or two. Are there questions about the cosmic temple before we move on to Genesis 2? Because that's what's coming next. Okay, are there questions about the cosmic temple, about the house home, the seven days? Uh, things that we can address there. Yeah, Tim. Um, so they are seven literal days, but we're not talking about material creation. Still, things are said to be happening in these days. Are we to be taking that uh, uh, as literal, right? Like right? plants are suddenly springing up. And no, no. I remember, again, uh, it's really just saying those things are set in place to work in the home. It's not like the dry land has to emerge at that time, or the time begins, or light begins, or the, okay? All of the house is built, but now it's going to start functioning as the home. Okay, so nothing material is happening in those seven days. You know, when Solomon gets up to pray the dedicatory prayer, he says, now we'll be able to come to this temple and we'll be able to offer our prayers and you'll hear our prayers. And you'll... Now, it's not that God never heard their prayers before. It's not that God was not protecting his people before or listening to their prayers or receiving their sacrifices. But now it's going to happen here. It's going to happen in this context. And God's going to be among us in this way. Maybe could, could I come back just one time? Uh, so people use symbolic depiction of, of this inauguration. Are we to say... Here is more interesting. How, how, would, how would the ancient Israelites have been yeah. thinking about it? What do you think the, the text demands of us? The text is more interested in telling you what the cosmos is rather than telling you, showing you a newsreel of what happened. Uh, again, I'm not shying away from a historicity kind of approach, but that's really not the point here. Uh, the idea is trying to understand what is the nature of this cosmos. And that's what he's trying to convey. Um, so the idea of what happened, well, you know, even if we think in very conservative terms of Moses sitting there on the plains of Sinai, talking to the Israelite people and telling them this story, remember, they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. They're talking about God's presence being restored in geographical space for the first time since the fall. And this whole idea of what's going on with God's presence, uh, this would be the logical way to talk about creation, that we have to understand the whole cosmos as sacred space. And so it's that kind of idea. But connected to seven 24-hour days, is something happening. Well, you know, when they did the temple dedication ceremonies, are, are they engaged 24-7 for those seven days? Well, no. They have activities, and functions are proclaimed, and functionaries installed spread out over seven days, uh, because it warrants it. It's important enough to not just have one day to do it, or three days to do it, but to have seven days to, to do that. Yes, ma'am? Forgive me if I'm belaboring Tim's point, but I'm, I think I'm just trying to sort of totally understand the house home metaphor, how it helps us understand this text. So would it would it be fair to say that um, when we're reading this in context, the original audience would have been utterly unconcerned with the relationship between the materiality and the functionality, right? So they don't they don't they're not really interested in what the material stuff was doing before right. or right. leading up to the functionality. Right. So they don't they don't care if it's and then also, I have a second question now. How do we understand the role of Adam and Eve, of human beings, sure. in relation to this? That's coming. That's the next part. <laughs> uh, 
in, in this functional account, where in the third day, I hardly have laboring this point again. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, you start a chart. It seems like on the third day, the language of the text uh, creates an image in my mind, intuitively, that things are emerging, right? Coming up, happening. Activity is going on. And the things that are happening, the activity that's going on, seems difficult to compress into a 24-hour day. What, what, yeah, again, I would, I'm not claiming that anything material actually is happening. Yes, it is presented as a well. God says, let the dry land emerge and let the plants sprout forth. But again, he's establishing those functions. And now he's talking about how those functions, which have been ongoing, that, that, you know, but in the, in the house. Again, remember, when the house is built, the plumbing works, the electricity works. That's been ongoing. But now he's saying, now this is part of the home. Let's view it in terms of the home, of you living here. Remember that if there are no people in it, it can't function as their home. And so uh, we're now going to take all these things that have been built into the house, and we're going to uh, identify them as the functions in the home. Yes, sir. This might be way too broad of a question, but I want to ask a kind of history of interpretation question. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Are, are, are there others within the history of interpretation that have come up with or developed a similar idea or similar way of looking at this text? Uh, most of the things that are parts of my interpretation, I can find those pieces said somewhere. Nobody's pulling it all together like this. But the cosmos as temple, you can find it all the way back to Philo and Josephus. You can find hints of it in the Church Fathers. In modern scholarship, uh, John Levinson at Harvard was talking about this in the 60s. Uh, you know, it's, the stuff's out there. Yes? Uh, I'm just wondering about the Sabbath. <coughs> How would you suggest people use that day to recognize God's authority? Okay, you never hear that? Uh, how, how would we use the Sabbath? Um, what, what's it look like? On the one hand, there are a couple basics. If we're to acknowledge that God is really the one in control, worship is appropriate. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways that we do that. Uh, if we are trying to participate in God's order, in God's kingdom, kingdom work is appropriate. Service to God's people and to the world. Uh, caring for the poor, working a soup kitchen. Um, those kinds of things are very appropriate. Anything that's kingdom work. Uh, is very appropriate on, on a Sabbath. But again, if Sabbath is our way of acknowledging in gratitude and appreciation the order that God has brought into our lives and our world, he doesn't want to have to tell us how to observe it. Um, if it's um, your anniversary, your wedding anniversary is coming, okay? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The wife does not like to have to tell the husband, okay, this is what I expect. I want to be taken out for dinner. I don't need McDonald's. I want to be given some flowers, and I'm sorry, picked from the yard is not, not working for me. Um, some candy would be very nice. Uh, you know, it, no, you don't want to do that, because then it's just 
mechanics of response. You want, you want your spouse to be creative and think about it and, and do something that's of their own initiative. That's where it's really appreciation and meaningful. And God's the same way. He doesn't want us to be robots just responding to, God said I have to do this, God said I have to do that. We're supposed to create, be creative and imaginative as we think about the ways to show God our appreciation for what he does for us. And so I think to that extent, he gives us the ideas of, well, these are things you shouldn't be doing. You know, uh, but, but here's, you know, how is it that you're going to reflect this? Well, be engaged in kingdom work. Be creative. Yes? Hey, you gave us some examples of connecting, in the ancient literature, rest and divine rest and temple. Is there anything that connects temple and creation or divine rest and creation in the ancient literature? Yes. Um, again, remember that text I showed you last night, making it world order. It went um, time, weather, food, temple. And there are lots of texts like that. Um, the, the most famous of the Babylonian cosmology texts is called Yuma Elish. And in that, uh, it's the god Marduk um, uh, quelling a rebellion of the gods then reordering, reorganizing the world under his control, and then building a temple. Um, and so we have this connection often. Uh, in terms of the, the Bible connections, we take a look at a place like uh, Isaiah 66, 1, uh, where it says the heaven is your, is your throne, the earth is your footstool. Now, who could build a temple for you? Uh, we get that in Solomon's prayer as well, that, you know, that no temple can do justice because God rules the, the universe. Um, we have uh, in Isaiah from chapters 40 and 49 all the way through that section statements like God is enthroned over the circle of the earth. And so this connection with cosmos and temple and rule uh, are very much biblical themes. Yes, sir. I, I'm having a really hard time wrapping my mind around what's happening this, the home house, as far as verse 11 goes, where um, God says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, and living seed, and fruit trees, bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Is he just simply stating the obvious that this is already there and occurring? Is he just pointing out what is already happening and, 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 and nothing, change, nothing happens, nothing changes? Is there a change that occurs when he speaks this, or is he just pointing out the obvious that is already occurring? Now, a material change is a change in terms of someone is there now for it to sprout for. Again, this is uh, walking through the house after you've just moved in and saying, this works, this works, that works. Who is the someone? What? Who, who is the someone? People in this image. People haven't been created yet. They're, this has been being set up for them so that they can move in on that sixth day. So it was so, it's already for those people. It's already for them to move in. It's already for them to move in. Okay, so this is setting up the home so that it's all ready so that people can move in in day six. But it's already there. It's already there. Again, the house so why already stated. Why does he have to state it? Why? why does he have to state it? Because he wants people to understand that he has set it all up for them. I mean, that's the whole understanding he wants people to have. That he has prepared this place for them and he's shown them around. I mean, they're not created yet. <laughs> but this story is being told to people. Yeah, <laughs> it's being told to people. 
I mean, it's not being told for, for nobody. It's being told to people. Yes? After I listened to you yesterday, I read through her Genesis, and I saw it in new eyes. I observed the things that I read over and over before that was there, but I observed them in a different order without putting in scientific, modern scientific knowledge. So it was written for me <laughs> that I could see Genesis. Because it's our home. It's the ancients. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I'm sure I'm the first person <laughs> that while you're talking about the Sabbath, grabbed his concordance and whipped out Numbers 1532. Mm -hmm. The man put to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. How does that fit with how you're describing a revised Sabbath interpretation when God is speaking to people and saying this guy, this person needs to be put to death for what he's doing? Uh, it's a controversial passage. Uh, there's some question about what's involved with his gathering wood. And many, many interpreters have concluded that he's gathering wood uh, in order to uh, engage in practices that have to do with other gods. Now, that's not terribly clear in that passage. And again, that's why it's controversial. But that's typically the direction that the interpretation goes. That it's not just a matter of picking up some pieces of wood. He has an intention to do something with them. And they try to glean information from the passage to try to understand that. But it is a controversial passage. Yes, sir. Well, you talked about the seventh day then that God rested and he's taking over control. I'm just curious where this whole thing about Satan enters in and disarrangement and all of that. Is that something that you will address at some point? Uh, I, I hope that we can. Um, again, the serpent and what the serpent does is a rather important piece. One more. Go ahead. Um, I'd be interested in the, what you see, what relationship you see between appropriate um, observance of the Sabbath and the idea of entering into God's rest. They're, they're very similar. Again, God's rest is uh, connected to his rule, which is connected to his order bringing, and we enter into that order, and so I, I see very much a uh, connection with that. Oh, one more. Okay, good, one more. Because um, the emphasis on the functionality of this account undermines Genesis 1's ability to affirm embodiment, right? People are sort of trying to get to um, get back to, right, if, if Hellenism gets us away from an affirmation of embodiment and the body in the material world. So often, um, theologically, people go to Genesis 1 and say, oh, look, God said it was good. There, there it is, the material thing. So does this account um, move us away from being able to use Genesis 1 as Again, it, if, if what I'm saying about being good is correct, it's a little bit different from what people use it for. Um, but I'm not sure quite where you're going with embodiment. I think the text, um, again, I, I think that Israelites uh, uh, believed that God is the builder of the house. He's responsible for the material cosmos. Uh, I believe that too. Uh, I think that's good theology. Um, and so the idea of the physical material world is, is important. It's, again, just not the story that I think is being told here. Um, People even ask about ex nihilo. Did, did God create out of nothing? 
Well, when he did the house, yes. But that's not what this story is. This story is not talking about ex nihilo, because it's not a house story. When God did the material thing, at some point he had to create something out of nothing. Uh, and I'm, I'm fine with that. It's just not the story that's being told. But I'm not sure I'm getting to your, your what you're really asking. I'm not sure what you mean by embodiment, I guess. Well, materiality and not, right? If, if Hellenism got theology off track, it, to some degree, by emphasis on soul over body, yeah. Um, and, and we sort of started envisioning even heaven as a totally disembodied place, which, even though there's always the, the you know, no, we're going to, the resurrection of the body, but sort of in practice, we've adopted yeah. this way. And, uh, and people often will go to Genesis 1 and sort of say, no, this is important. The materiality is important to God. So you're saying we can't use it in that way. Is there a way to use the functional narrative to still affirm the, the goodness of the material, the body? Um, I, again, I think biblical theology as a whole can do that. Um, I wouldn't draw that theology necessarily from here, but I think that biblical theology does that. So I don't think that the Bible is being that kind of philosophical and separating those things out. You just maybe go to different texts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move on. Genesis 2 and 3. <coughs> It's likely that as you have thought about Genesis 2, that you have assumed that Genesis 2, with Adam and Eve, is giving a fuller description of what happened on day 6. I think that's probably a fair assumption. I won't ask for raising hands, but uh, that's, that's been the traditional way of thinking, and it's what most people assume. But please notice that it is an assumption. Genesis 1 does not mention Adam and Eve. It does not talk about two individuals. Genesis 2 does not latch back into day 6 explicitly. And therefore it is a, an interpretation, a deduction, an inference. It's not something the text is explicit about. And if the text isn't explicit about it, it's fair game to question it. Say, is that really what we ought to think? Now, it's very clear literarily that the text makes a transition between Genesis, we'll call it the first account, Genesis 1, and of course, the Greek goes to chapter 2, verse 4. Who divided these chapters? What were they thinking? But anyway, now, so the first account and the second account, chapter 1, chapter 2. There is a very clear literary transition between the two. It comes in the introduction in, in chapter 2, verse 4. And your translations might vary. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, the record, depending on what translation you have. Okay, the Hebrew word there is toledot, elah toledot. These are the whatever. And it's, in one sense, it's the outcomes. The outcomes. So we get account, record, uh, even the word generation was like the, the idea that this is what comes out of it, the next generation. Now, that particular literary introduction is well known in Genesis. It occurs 11 times. And here's your list. 11 times as a literary transition from one section of the text to the next section of the text. Well, it is therefore important for us to try to understand how this works as a literary transition. 
Now, what I've got on the chart here, G equals genealogy, N equals narrative. Okay, so you can see that sometimes we've got uh, this uh, introduction coming in different, different ways. What I really want to direct your attention to is this third column. That is, sometimes the literary introduction introduces a segment which is what I call synoptic. Synoptic means it's doubling back in order to deal with something again. Okay, if we were dealing with uh, chapter two being about the sixth day, that would be synoptic. We'd be doubling back. So already talked about the sixth day. Now it's going to come back and tell you more about it. Okay, that's a synoptic. Sequel, of course, would mean that it's moving on to, to another time period. Okay, so, and sometimes you can see, sometimes we have sequels, sometimes you have synoptics. Now the first question I asked was, does it have to do with, with the, the parts and what they look like? In Genesis 2-4, which I don't have on here, we have narrative to narrative. Right? The narrative of Genesis 1, the narrative of Genesis 2. We don't have genealogies in either of those. Okay? And the only other time we have that is here in 6-9. So 6-9 is the only other narrative to narrative. But I didn't find that to be conclusive. I mean, it's true, it's worth noting, but it's not conclusive. But then I ask questions about this. Is there any pattern as to which ones are synoptic and which ones are sequel? After all, we're going to try to decide whether Genesis 2 is dealing with day 6, synoptic, or whether it's dealing with a later time period, sequel. I want to know how, how this works. How is Genesis using these literary introductions? Okay, so you see the, the logic of the question. So I started looking at all the synoptics. And what is it, one of five of them or so? <coughs> All examples of synoptic relationships concern brothers. Okay, so in 5.1, we've talked about Cain and his genealogy. Then we come back and talk about Seth's genealogy. That's synoptic, it covers the same time period. Okay, in 11.10, we've talked about the uh, three sons of Noah. Given all those in chapter 10, we double back and we get Shem again. That's synoptic. Okay, in 2519, we do Ishmael, then we double back and we get Isaac. We do Esau, we double back and get Jacob. Okay, all of the synoptics deal with brothers. At that point, I say, okay, does Genesis. One and two deal with brothers. No, it doesn't. That means that my inclination, this doesn't prove it by any means, but my inclination would be to say Genesis 2 is a sequel, not a synoptic. If the second account is sequel, it's like Luke and Acts, rather than synoptic, like Matthew Mark. If it's a sequel, the people in the first account are not necessarily Adam and Eve. And the second account does not need to fit into day six. Now, in some senses, that allows us to, to sigh a breath of relief because there are some problems reading chapter two as day six. Number one, the order is different. We have in chapter 2, people, and then God forms animals. 
different order than we have in chapter one. Now, your translations mask it. If you've got an NIV, in chapter two it says, the Lord God had created the animals. Nice try. <laughs> Doesn't work. Hebrew has a way to do that, and this isn't it. That's a minor issue. The major issue is that when we look at chapter 2 and see all that we would have to fit into day 6, Adam's naming all the animals. And that's only one of many things that are taking place on day 2. Do we really think that's happening in a 24-hour period? Probably wasn't a lot of sleep involved there. But hey, he was just creating, he doesn't need sleep yet. You see the, the problem. There are problems, and uh, we need to recognize that. Now, of course, any position that we take has problems. So it's not as if we're going to solve all the problems by opting for another position. I just wanted you to recognize that there are problems with the traditional position. If it's a sequel, then the people in chapter 1 are not out of need. Or at least not necessarily so. Could be so, I suppose, but not necessarily so. So the idea would be God created people. Doesn't say how many. Doesn't say who they were. He created people. He made them in his image. In one sense, you could say giving them his image could be the act of creating them. But again, that then gets into science issues, and I'm trying not to deal with science issues. I just want to talk about what options, what alternatives the text has for us to consider. I'm not in a position to tell you which alternative might be right, but I want us to understand what options are there so we can try to sort through them. Now, if it, if it were the case that we have people sort of en masse in chapter 1, and then Adam and Eve later on in chapter 2, um, chapter 1 would fit very well with what we find in the rest of the ancient Near East, where people are always created en masse. It would also fit in with evolution, where people evolve as a group. But again, it's neither science nor ancient Near East that are driving our decisions. We have to make our decisions based on text. And in text, I can only say that that's one of the options that the text allows. In the ancient Near East, it would be logical that people would be created en masse. That's because in the ancient Near East, people were created as slave labor for the gods. You can create slave labor, you wouldn't just make one or two. Make a whole bunch of them. After all, there are lots of gods who need the slave labor. So, in the ancient Near Eastern pattern, it made sense for them to create lots of people at once. Okay, the Bible, that wouldn't be necessary. They had a different view of things. But again, one of the possibilities then is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are sequel accounts with people already there. Now, that would mean that there were people before Adam and Eve and alongside of Adam and Eve. Again, I'm not talking scientific theories here, although that would fit with scientific theories, but talk text. We've always had these problems. Who does Cain marry? 
You know, the sister thing has, has a... Hmm. Uh, who is Cain afraid of when he's driven away from God? Who does Cain build a city for? City wouldn't really be the right word. It's just for him and his wife and his kids. So there are things in the text itself that suggest the possibility that there are other people. But again, the text isn't really addressing it at all. But the fact is, we've never even considered this possibility, that one and two are at different times. And then two comes later. It's a possibility. In chapter one, the cosmos as sacred space functions on behalf of people. Right? That's the whole idea. God is setting it up to be home for people. People are put in sacred space in chapter two to function on its behalf. The Garden of Eden is sacred space. People are put there to function on its behalf. So the two accounts are related. They both have to do with people in sacred space. First account, how sacred space functions for people. Second account, how people function in sacred space. Chapter 1 doesn't tell you where the center of sacred space is. It just tells you the cosmos is sacred space. God moves in, makes it his home. Chapter 2 tells you where the center of sacred space is, Garden of Eden, the people there. Both accounts are functional rather than material. They talk about how sacred space and people function together. The first sets up the cosmos as sacred space to function on behalf of people. The second, particular people in sacred space to function on its behalf. Okay, so you see the relationship between them. Now let's talk about Adam. Adam, of course, is uh, sometimes translated the name Adam. Sometimes it's translated mankind. Sometimes humanity. Um, the, the man versus the woman. Uh, all kinds of different ways it's handled. 34 occurrences in Genesis 1 through 5. Some of them do not have the definite article. Now, the importance of this is, uh, if it does not have the definite article, in English, of course, definite article is the. In Hebrew, if it doesn't have the definite article, it could either be a personal name, or it could be a generic. Okay, And so we have five times where it's clearly a personal name, but they're all late in the, in the sequence. Okay, five times as a personal name. So when we have Adam in a genealogy, that's a personal name. There are four times where it's generic. Okay, so again, 126, uh, talking about God created Adam, male and female, he created them. Well, obviously there, Adam is not Adam, the individual personal name. Okay, so it, we have it both ways, generic and uh, <coughs> personal name, I think that would definitely are. What's interesting are the times that it occurs with the definite article. When it has a definite article, it cannot be a personal name. Hebrew does not put definite articles on personal names. So when it's ha-adam, ha is the definite article in Hebrew. When it's ha-adam, okay, we know it's not dealing with a name, Adam. It could be dealing with an individual. It could be dealing with ha-adam, that is the representative human being. And now I'm going to refer to that as an archetype. An archetype is when Adam is, is serving as a representative for all of humanity. I mean, Paul treats it as an archetype. In Adam, we all sin. In Adam, we all die. Adam is an archetype there. In Christ, we all have life. Christ is an archetype there. 
Abraham is the father of all those uh, in the faith. Abraham's an archetype. Okay, archetype is not just a prototype. Prototype is the first in a series. An archetype is one in whom there is representation for the whole group. And the New Testament and the Old Testament both treat Adam as an archetype, as, as well as, as others. Again, note that just because someone's an archetype doesn't mean they aren't an individual or they aren't historical. Abraham is historical and individual, but he can serve also as an archetype. Because the archetype is functional. It's representational. With, with the definite article, then, we have to ask the question, is this showing us the archetypal, representational nature of Ha'adam? 20, archetypal individual, uh, and that covers our whole second section here, from 2.7 with the forming, all the way through 3.24 uh, after the fall. Three times with the preposition, I won't get into the details of that, I'm sorry. Um, so, in that sense, uh, in the segment we're dealing with, the second, chapters 2 and 3, we have typically the definite article, which suggests some sort of archetypal, representational, humanity kind of approach. Again, that's different from the use what we have as a personal name. So the question is, when we're dealing with Genesis 2, are we dealing with Adam as an individual, or are we dealing with Adam as an archetype? He's both. But which one, which one are we dealing with? Okay, when Paul talks about we all die in Adam, he's not dealing with him as an individual. Okay, we don't die by the individual died, so we die when he died. It's we die in him because he represents us all. So my proposal is that we need to think in terms of archetypal functions when we get to chapter 2. Uh, lots of people, when they start talking about Genesis 2, they say, well, I mean, okay, maybe you've got a point in Genesis 1, they'll say to me, maybe, 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 that'll work. I can see that functions are important there, fine, fine, yada, yada, yada. But chapter 2, form, from dust, we've got ingredients, we've got activity, material, this certainly, certainly is material. Let's take a look, see what we've got. I'm going to suggest that everything in Genesis 2 regarding human origins is first and foremost archetypal. Everything regarding human origins is first and foremost archetypal. The forming accounts, as I would call them, are most relevant to Adam and Eve as archetypes rather than as individuals. Again, let me, let me emphasize, I do believe they were individuals, real people in a real past. But I still have to ask the question, what story is being told? You recognize that from chapter 1. I was asking the same question there. What story is being told? And I'm suggesting that the forming accounts, the story that's being told, pertains to archetypes, not individuals. So, dust and rib. Let's get through dust and rib, and then we'll take our break. So, this will be about 10 minutes um, still. So let's see what we can do with it. What do you think about when you think about dust? Genesis 2. Well, one thing that people sometimes think, again, if they say ingredients, well, if these are the ingredients of the human body, that would be kind of like chemistry. 
Okay, but we've got a couple problems there. Number one, of course, we don't expect that the Israelites are thinking chemistry. Their periodic table is kind of small. <laughs> okay? We don't think that they're thinking about chemistry. Secondly, it would be bad chemistry because dust is not the same chemical ingredients as the human body. Okay, so that, that really wouldn't work too well, and usually with the moments of thought, we'll put that aside. The alternative is to think in terms of um, artistry. The, again, this idea of forming, that God is molding a human body um, out, of, out of dust, and then he's going to breathe a breath of life and it becomes living. You know, it's, it's a Pinocchio moment. I'm a real one! The, the uh, idea of coming to life from this. But if that were the idea that the texts were trying to communicate, they wouldn't use dust. They'd use the wrong word. They would use clay. Clay is moldable. Dust is not. You try to shape dust, you know, it doesn't mold, it doesn't shape. If the whole idea was God shaping it, regardless of the ingredients, it would have used clay. So if it's not chemistry, and it's not artistry, what is dust doing here? Again, I hope you're, you're following my method. My method is, you ask the questions. And when you encounter problems, then you say, okay, obviously I'm, I'm missing something. What else is there? To lead you to new ways of thinking about a text. Well, it turns out, again, that the text indeed gives us the information we need. The text tells us what's going on with dust. And it tells us in 319, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Dust is indicative of mortality. When the text says that we are formed from dust, it's not chemistry, it's not artistry, it's mortality, it's identity. Now, at that point, people have shied away from that because they say, whoa, 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 I'm sorry, Paul, excuse me, you know Paul, let me introduce you, uh, Romans 5, you know, death came by sin. So, Paul says that people were created immortal. No, he doesn't. He says death came from sin. That is not the same thing as saying that we were created immortal. Again, we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions. We'll get back to Paul in a minute. We're not going to ignore him. But let's go to Genesis 3. First of all, we've got this statement. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. The connection to mortality. We've got another very strong proof of this. When God plants the garden, he gives them two trees. One of them is a tree of life. If you're immortal, you don't need a tree of life. Why would God give them something that, that he had already given them? He's given them? If he had given them immortality, there's no need for a tree of life. The very fact that he gives them the tree of life tells us that they are mortal. And they need a remedy. They need an antidote. And that's what the tree of life does. People were mortal. 
provided with an antidote. Now back to Paul. Through death, I'm sorry, through sin came death. Okay, what happened when people sinned? They're driven from the garden, and it specifically mentions a fearsome guardian, the cherub, was set up to guard the way to the tree of life. When people sinned, they lost, they lost access to the tree of life. Sin forfeited the antidote. Without the antidote, they are subject to death, their natural mortality. Through sin, we are subject to death. That's what Paul says. So, dust tells us what we are. We are mortal. Now, Paul likewise goes on to say that the first man was of dust, and then he goes on to talk about Christ being of heaven, dust and heaven. Again, mortality, frailty, and then heaven, spirituality, and we are all from dust. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 47 and 48. So again, the dust refers to our mortality, our frailty. We are all of dust in Adam, right? The archetype. In Adam, we are all of dust. The first man of dust, we are all of dust. That's that archetypal representation identity of all of us. Now I'm going to come back to that in a second, but first we need to look at this picture. This is uh, Egyptian, obviously. Uh, it's a relief that uh, conveys some important things about Pharaoh. Here's Pharaoh over here, you probably recognize him. Um, and he's being escorted by two deities. He's being escorted to his enthronement, his coronation, where he is becoming Pharaoh. Again, it's not that he's becoming a human being at this moment. Notice the, the wording in Psalms. Today you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, enthronement involves a, a new relationship between God and the king. That's what's happening here. They are, they are enthroning the king, and he is becoming the choice of the gods, and they are becoming his sponsor. That's shown here, but it's also shown here. This is the creator god, Kunum, and he is forming Pharaoh of the potter's wheel. So, it's forming, but it's not material. This is not trying to tell you about Pharaoh's material origin, how he was born, how he came into existence as a human being. It's rather talking about how Pharaoh has been shaped for this role, for this position. Yes, it's function-oriented. A very material-looking picture, forming him on the potter's wheel, but function-oriented. Again, we have the same kind of thing in the Bible, in, Psalm, um, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah 49, uh, both servant songs, and it's talking about the servant whom God formed <coughs> in the womb to be servant. God's forming has to do with the role that he will have. So we have this concept of forming connected to the role and function. Now, we're going to go back to this idea of being made from dust. Now we've got all the pieces together, we're ready to talk about it. And I want to enter into the conversation through a psalm, Psalm 103. 
Psalm 1314 says, For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. By the way, another one of my son's drawings here uh, showing the, the Egyptian scene uh, that we just looked at. But take a look at this verse. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Formed and dust. Same vocabulary as 2 7. Same Hebrew language as in Genesis 2 7. So we know that the psalmist is referring back to Genesis 2 7. And this is a verse that you're probably familiar with. Psalm 103 is a popular psalm, very well known. And you've probably read it many times. But you need to notice something that's extremely important here. The plural pronoun. We. Now this is the same thing that I just told you Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 48. That we are all of dust. This says it again. We are formed from dust. We are dust. But let the impact of that settle in. If we are all dust, every human being is formed from dust. That means you, 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 me. We are all formed from dust. I suspect that you were born of a woman. Unless Indianapolis has got a special place. I suspect you were born of a woman. Being formed from dust, therefore, does not describe your material formation. It doesn't say how you came into being as a human. You were born like anybody else was born. But yet, you are formed from dust. That means that being formed from dust would not preclude being born of a woman. What kind of claim is Psalm 103 making about you? What kind of claim is Psalm 103 making about you? It's claiming you're formed from dust. Is that a claim about your material origin? No, it's not. What is the biblical text of Genesis claiming about Adam. Is it a claim about his material origin? Not necessarily so. When Saul says that we are formed from dust, it's making a statement about our mortality, our frailty. And we've seen that Genesis 3 identifies that same element for Genesis 2. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. Adam is an archetype representing all of us. These verses tell us that. Genesis 3, Psalm 103, 1 Corinthians 15. He is an archetype of all of us. And we are all formed from dust. That is not a statement about material origins. In which case, the Bible is not making a claim about material origins. The Egyptian king was formed on the potter's wheel. That was not his material origins. It rather pertains to role and identity. The more 
who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth. By the way, those seem to refer to material activity. Okay? But it's creation context. Who forms, that's the same verb, the human spirit. That is not material. Again, we see that the verb forms is not inherently a material activity. You see how we've drawn conclusions. One might even say we've jumped to conclusions by the translations we have in front of us. To think certain ways about forming from dust, to draw certain interpretations that that's talking about material origins. I'm trying to demonstrate to you from the biblical text that that is not necessarily the case. <clears throat> Try to get through a woman here. Yeah, we can do it. Then we'll have our break. So, what about woman? Let me ask you a question. When Adam woke up, saw Eve, did he believe that she had been built from his rib? No. He did not. How do I know that? I'm reading the text carefully. What are the first words out of Adam's mouth? You are bone of my bone, and, and, flesh of my flesh. There's more than the rib going on here. So, what did Adam think? What did the Israelites think? See how a question and observation leads us to our investigation. How is the word used that's translated rib? Why, why do we say that it's a rib? Let's take a look at its usage to find out whether that can be sustained. Every place else this word is used in the Hebrew Bible, it is never anatomical. It's typically architectural. And in architectural parlance, it refers to one side of something when there are two sides of something. So this side of the temple, that side of the temple. This side of the altar, that side of the altar. Okay, It tends to be almost locational. But if it talked about uh, a doorway, like the one back there, two sides to a doorway, a single cabinet, the, Hebrew doesn't talk about cabinets. But again, two doors that you would have, two sides. It typically talks about a side as one of two. So when the text says that God took one of Adam's sides, not one of Adam's ribs, God took one of Adam's sides, Adam only has two of them. God took half of Adam to build a woman. Now that's mighty radical surgery. <laughs> but of course, you know the question to ask by now, would the Israelites be thinking surgery? When it talks about Adam being in a deep sleep, 
Would the Israelites be thinking Anastasia? Let's think like Israelites would think. So what does a deep sleep refer to? Why don't we look at text and find out? There are several different categories I could point you to, but I'm going to move through to the third one, because that's the one I think is most pertinent to this context. A deep sleep is when you're unresponsive to the human realm and correspondingly responsive to communication from the divine realm. This is a visionary state. Think of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham has cut up the pieces of the animals. You know, remember the story? And then he's in a deep sleep and he sees the torch and the censer passing between the parts of the animals. Torch and the censer representing the presence of God. This is no less than the ratification of the covenant arguably the most important theological spiritual moment in the entire Old Testament. And it's shown as a vision. So that Abram understands the nature of this relationship between God and his people. A vision used to communicate a significant spiritual theological point. So I propose to you that Adam is put into a deep sleep, into a visionary state in that deep sleep, he sees in his vision himself being cut in half. And out of one half, a woman is built. And he says, now I get it. Now I understand. This is not just a mating partner. There's something ontological here. Something about the nature of humankind. Something about the nature of mankind and womankind. There's something more than just different, uh, different genders. The different genders have an ontological unity. Now, I'm not talking about androgyny here. I'm talking about an ontological unity. Now, does the text know that this is the issue on the table? Indeed, the text tells us this is the issue on the table. Genesis 2.24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Why would you leave the most basic biological relationship parents to children in order to launch out and start a new family kind of thing with a stranger? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you do that? because ontology trumps biology. There's something closer than the relationship between parents and children. Mankind and womankind are an inherent unity. And you will seek out that wife, leaving father and mother to seek out that other half of you. Now this is not suggested if you don't get married, you're not a whole person. We're not going, this is about the humanity. This is about the species. Okay? It's not true about animals. It's true about us. And when you are becoming one flesh, you are becoming what you originally were. You're restoring that unity 
that even though gender, we are one. So it's telling us something about the nature of all humanity. This is not a statement about Adam and Eve as individuals. The narrator specifically says the importance of this is for all of us. This is who we are. We are mortal, dust. We are gendered, ontologically united. This is what humanity is. It is not the material origins of this woman, Eve, and it is not the material origins of this man, Adam. It is the origins of all of us, our identity as human beings. It goes beyond, way beyond, individuals to the archetypes of humanity. We'll stop here for the break, and we'll get to this and move on. And move on. Uh, 10, 10, 10, 15. 10, 15. Still got a lot to cover. <laughs>